Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And this week on the podcast, I have a rare and weird treat for you. You are about to see a visibly younger James Corbett introduce you to episode 317 of the podcast, Unknown Unknowns. But you're going to think to yourself, being a good Corbett reporter and knowing the Corbett Report hymn book off by heart, what are you talking about, James? Episode 317 was the truth about Glass-Steagall, not this unknown unknowns. And I will rejoin that, yes, you are technically correct, but... <laughs> and the but stems from what I was just talking about on the most recent flashback episode of the podcast. If you haven't caught that yet, I, I suggest you do. I think it's an important flashback to Meet Smedley Butler, episode 123 of The Corbett Report, released in 2010. And as I noted in the introduction to that flashback episode, I did note that that was one of those episodes that I put out there. I By the time I finished it I and put it together, I thought, I'm not sure. I don't think I said this the right way. I don't know if people are going to resonate with it. And I put it out there and boy, did people resonate with it. And I got a lot of good feedback about that. So I shared that insight in the introduction to that flashback episode. And it got me to thinking, you know, there is a shelved episode of the Corbett Report podcast that I had completely recorded. All Everything was lined up in a row. Uh, Brock had started the editing for it. And then I said, you know what? Let's not do this. I, I felt at the time... I felt, I'm not, again, I'm not sure this is the right way to introduce this idea. I'm not sure people are going to get it. I'm not sure I said it the right way. Uh, I don't think I'm going to put this one out. So I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think for the first and only time, I had a podcast episode completely done and never released it. <laughs> but in the spirit of that meets Medley Butler episode that similarly I was thinking uh should I release it okay I'll release it and it turned out to really resonate with people well I'm going to put this out there on the off chance that maybe this resonates with people and the subject of today unknown unknowns as I'm as you're about to see uh we'll get into some subjects that I then subsequently went on to cover in perhaps greater detail in other podcasts that I put together. For example, you will know that I've covered the uh, the story of the 10,000 in my conversation with Vinny Caggiano a couple of years ago. Um, I covered the, uh, of course, the JFK Fed myth I've covered in greater detail, including a very in-depth presentation that I gave to the JFK Lancer conference a couple of years ago. So I have covered this material elsewhere, but this is a synthesis of it and puts it in, I think, a philosophical framework that, looking back on it, I'm not sure why I had such misgivings about putting it out. I mean, maybe it's not the perfect way of putting this information together, but I think it gets the point across. And anyway, you can be the judge. <laughs> Was this worth shelving for uh, five years? <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> why did I do that? I don't know, but I'm releasing it here today. So as a special treat, you're going to get episode 431 of the Corbett Report podcast, Unknown Unknowns, which will be labeled as episode 317 of the Corbett Report podcast. Um, anyway, I'm just letting you know what's going on. Uh, with the proviso, this was recorded in a different way than I usually do as well, via the my camera and my microphone wasn't set up very well, so the audio isn't as good as usual, but it's still perfectly hearable. Just letting you know in advance. Anyway, all that being said, enjoy this random surprise blast from the past episode that you never saw. You're listening to The Corbett Report. 
CorbettReport.com. Welcome back to the program, friends. Welcome back to the Corbett Report podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you on this 19th day of May 2017. You are tuned into episode 317 of the Corbett Report podcast, Unknown Unknowns. And we're going to start off this podcast with a little bit of an unusual break. Uh, I am going to relate a story to you that, on the subject of unknowns, will be unknown to you. You have no reason to know it because I have not had particular reason to share it on the podcast before. But, well, let me reveal right now, I am a pretty large Beatles geek. Maybe not the world's largest Beatles geek. That would be a very tall order to fill. But maybe I'm getting up there. And I say that because I am holding in my hands a book. A book that I did not introduce during my recent Questions for Corbett on What's on Your Bookshelf, which if you haven't checked out yet, you really should. I think it was a particularly enlightening episode of Q4C. But on that, I was going through some of the books on my bookshelf. I did not go over this one, but you probably have seen this hefty, hefty tome taking up a large degree of space on my bookshelf in the background when I'm doing my various videos because it's uh, virtually unmissable. For the benefit of those people who are listening to the audio version of this podcast, I am holding in my hands The Beatles Tune In, Volume 1 of All These Years by Mark Lewison. Now, that probably doesn't mean anything at all to the non-Beatles geeks in the crowds, but uh, in the crowd, but Mark Lewison is essentially considered the world's preeminent expert on the Beatles. Uh, he is the world's uh, foremost Beatles historian. If you want to know what each of the Beatles were eating for breakfast on September 7th, 1963, you go to Mark Lewison. And so he has embarked on writing the definitive biography of the Fab Four, which is a projected three-volume series uh, called All These Years, and volume one is called Tune In. And <laughs> it's uh, to say it's a monumental undertaking is to not do justice to how monumental this really is. The trade version of this biography, uh, volume one, the only volume that so far has been released, he worked on this one for several years. He's now a few years into working on volume two and probably three. Um, working on them simultaneously. It will be several more years, I'm sure, before we see Volume 2. But Volume 1 took several years to produce. The trade version is 800 pages, and it goes, it tells the story of the Beatles up to 1963, not including 1963. So it gets to the uh, basically New Year's Eve 62, turning into 1963. 800 pages. <laughs> and just to add to the insanity, I don't have the trade version of this book. I have the special extended edition, <laughs> which is not in and of itself one volume. It is in and of itself two volumes and is 1,500 pages. I kid you not, 1,500 pages on the Beatles before 1963, before Beatlemania even happened in Britain, let alone before anyone in the United States had ever heard the name. So <laughs> it is... I recognize slightly insane to actually have this, let alone read it. But read it I did, and read it for light bedtime reading I did. I devoured it, I devoured it in about one month of light bedtime reading. 
because it was truly fascinating. And of course it's not telling the story of the Beatles is not just telling the story of a band. It's telling the entire social historical context of Britain in the 1950s and 60s and where this phenomenon came from. And Mark Lewison does a very admirable job of putting you in the shoes of someone in that time frame and telling the story as if it is happening. So um, it's it's actually quite riveting, and perhaps the most insane part of all of it is as I was going through these 1,500 pages, the thought occurred to me on more than one occasion, you know, I bet he's leaving some stuff out. I bet this could have been longer. <laughs> there, there's all sorts of things that I'm sure he had to whittle down, just uh, some of the nuggets. <laughs> but anyway, so I have, uh, I have read these 1,500 pages on... <laughs> the Beatles up to 1963, and it was when I was reading volume two that I came to something very interesting, something that gave me pause for thought. Because although for the Beatles geeks in the crowd, all I'll have to say is the rumor of the 10,000, and you'll know what I'm talking about, but for the non-geeks, there is a rumor that has gone or swirled around ever since 1963, essentially, or 62 even, um, that the Beatles' first ever uh, release, their first record, as The Beatles, not the backing record that they did with Tony Sheridan, My Bonnie, but their first actual release, Love Me Do, um, only made it into the national charts in England because those charts were fiddled with. And specifically the charges that the manager of The Beatles at the time in 1962-63 was, of course, Brian Epstein of the Epstein family. Confusingly enough, he insisted on calling himself Epstein, although his family was Epstein. Anyway, a local retailing family who had a number of retail ventures in Liverpool at that time. Uh, Brian had started out as a furniture retail manager and had excelled at that and eventually moved on to managing the record retail outlet that the family had, which at exactly the right time where the baby boom generation was starting to come of age and starting to buy uh, LPs at that time in record numbers, ha ha ha, excuse the pun. So record retailing was very much the business to be in at that particular time and forming a group that uh, would be in the hearts and minds of that generation would prove to be very lucrative for the Fab Four and others. But anyway, um, so Brian Epstein was the manager. He was also a record retailer. He had a retail shop that he was managing. In fact, I believe they had expanded to three retail outlets in Liverpool by the time the Beatles released Love Me Do in late 1962. And Love Me Do ended up charting nationally, which was something of a, a monumental achievement. I mean, not on the big scheme of things, I suppose, the, the greatest achievement uh, that you would put, pin when you're thinking about the Beatles' career, but still a pretty remarkable achievement considering all of the, uh, all of the things that were against their favor, um, being this band from Liverpool, which might as well have been the other end of the planet for people in London and the, uh, the industry generally. And for this, uh, this particular song to chart at all is particularly plexing, perplexing from our perspective, I would say, because although I am a Beatles fan, and I think they wrote some marvelous, incredible, mind-blowing work, Love Me Do was signally not mind-blowing. <laughs> in fact, it's probably, in my opinion, the most inane piece of audio juvenilia that has ever graced the charts than has graced millions of years around the globe in the half century since it was released. It was a piece, a stinking piece of garbage, although I suppose contextually it might have been interesting. But anyway, it is amazing that it did chart, and ever since it did reach 
the national charts in Britain, eventually reaching number 19 on the national charts. But it did go in directly into the charts after its first week of release at number 49, just squeaking into the top 50 of the record retailer publications top 50, um, which was the first chart that it appeared in. It also appeared in Liverpool Echo's uh, Discers column, um, which, w which had a Liverpool's own top five chart. And of course it trended at number one um, from its release uh, in that particular local Liverpool chart, which I think is, was to be expected. Uh, clearly the Beatles were the largest band in Liverpool at that time, and that, that's not really, I mean, there's very, very many different ways that that could be measured, and was, uh, was so. So I don't think that's particularly surprising. And the inference is that it was massive locally, and as a result it appeared as a blip on the national radar. That's at least one reading of that. But the alternative reading is that, well, Brian Epstein was not just a record man a retail manager, but in fact, the retail outlet that he was managing happened to be one of the retail outlets that supplied the sales figures that went into the calculation of the national uh, charts. The national charts were calculated, well, there was a record retailer, there was Melody Maker, I think there was a couple of other charts going around at that time. As I say, it was a booming industry, so there was a lot of uh, activity that was happening around it at that time, and a lot of charts were popping up, and the Beatles managed to trend on a lot of them, and uh, Brian Epstein was specifically polled for at least a couple of those charts. And so the rumor started to float right away about Brian Epstein having fiddled Love Me Do into the charts by personally purchasing some copies. So I'm going to read the little section here on page 1377 and 1378 of volume one of the extended special edition of All These Years. So please follow along. <laughs> uh, where Mark Lewison writes, uh, quote, so freakish was all of this, i.e. that they had placed in these charts, rumors quickly took grip that Brian was hyping the chart, buying in boxes of Love Me Do to fake its position. The strongest story had him buying 10,000. It was a rumor that clung despite Brian trying to shake it off. No one would believe he hadn't, and denial only fed suspicion, and it wouldn't be long before the whole business was talking about it, unfairly casting a blight on his integrity because it wasn't true. As John Lennon would explain, it, love me do, sold so many in Liverpool the first two days, because they were all waiting for us to make it, that the dealers down in London thought there was a fiddle on. That Mr. Epstein feller up there is cheating. But he wasn't. Many in Liverpool felt sure of it too. As the Beatles began to go national, so Brian began to find he'd fewer friends than he thought. Gossip about the 10,000 was traded maliciously and without proof by people jealous of his success or keen to claim insider status. No one considered Brian's membership of a committee that challenged suspicions of chart malpractice, or his resistance to faking My Bonnie, the earlier recording that the Beatles did as a backing band for Tony Sheridan in Hamburg, into even his own shop's published Top 20. Or, most striking of all, the fact that in 1962, it made no difference how many copies a shop sold of any record, because the charts weren't computed that way. NEMS Brian's retail outlet, had been making, uh, had been a chart return operation for years. It still provided data to Melody Maker and also now to Record Retailer. But those papers' weekly phone calls or printed questionnaires didn't ask for sales figures, only for a shop's best-selling records ranked from 1 to 30. The papers awarded 30 points to the number one record, down to one point for the number 30, and calculated an overall national total. 
all the charts were produced this way, as they still were in America. Brian Epstein had no need to buy 10,000 Love Me Do's to fake it into the charts. He didn't even need to buy one. End quote. Now, that was particularly interesting when I read that, because I had also heard the 10,000 rumor, and I thought it sounded about right. Because again, Love Me Do, how on earth did that song chart nationally? I could understand in Liverpool, but nationally it seems dubious. And then when you ca calculate the fact that, well, their manager was not only a re record retailer, but also managing a shop that fed into the national charts, it all stinks to high heaven. It was probably fiddled, yeah, probably 10,000. Uh, the rumor's there, where there's smoke, there's fire. That, would, that had always been my, my understanding of that particular rumor, until I read this and discovered, oh, the charts weren't calculated that way. It wasn't based on sales figures. He didn't have to buy 10,000 copies. He could have bought a million copies or 10,000 copies or one copy or no copies and still fiddled his, the position on the charts, i.e. he could have told the, uh, the people in London that it wasn't the number one selling record in his store or that he could have told them it was his, the number one selling. He could have put it anywhere on that chart and fiddled that way. But at any rate, it doesn't matter how many copies he actually sold because they didn't ask him for the numbers. Now that's... That's important. That's an interesting little factoid because, look, what, what is the ultimate thing that I'm saying here? I'm not saying that the Beatles didn't have some shady things going on in terms of their promotion. In fact, I am still of the opinion that they were a manufactured uh, industrial phenomenon that was, at the very least, the Beatlemania craze was created as PR hype by Capitol Records, at the very least in preparation for their U.S. visit in 64, I have no doubt that there was some shady shenanigans going on, and it wouldn't surprise me in the least if there were shady shenanigans going on with London and the charts there and what have you. But the 10,000 rumor, which I had assumed was some sort of, if not evidence, at least a good idea of how that was accomplished, is nonsensical. It doesn't actually match what really happened. And it's one of those interesting things where you think, you hear an explanation for something that sounds plausible, so okay, all right, well, let's go along with that, until you discover something that you had no idea, you did not know, that you did not know, that completely changes your calculation of how plausible that explanation is. An unknown unknown can come along and totally change your perception and your understanding of a given subject. In this case, how would I know how charts were calculated in Britain in the early 1960s? I mean, I, I, it, you'd have to be a historian to actually know or care about that, or maybe someone in the industry who had been working there at that time. But who, who would actually bother to go and look at the questionnaires that were sent out or how they were, these charts were compiled? Well, an actual historian might actually go and look that up in preparation for a book like this and actually inform the readers about it, and that will change our perception. So. These things that we do not even know that we don't know can totally change our understanding. That is the point of today's episode, because there is a point to be made about, let's break out the philosophical words here, epistemological humility. We don't know everything, and in fact, we don't even know what we don't know. There are things out there that we don't know that we could come across tomorrow that could completely change our understanding of a given subject. And it is exceptionally important that we are at least aware 
of and take into account the fact that we certainly don't know everything and that things can come along that change our understanding. Why is that important? Look, the Beatles as a subject, whatever, this is not, this is not the groundbreaking, extremely important thing about, you know, how the world really works that I want to focus on on the corporate report. I'm just bringing this in as an example of this phenomenon. So what is an example of how an unknown unknown can change our understanding of the plausibility of an explanation that we have hitherto believed in the Corbett Report realm. And if you've been watching the Corbett Report this week, which I hope you have, you will have noticed, of course, my recent interview with G. Edward Griffin, in which we dissected and ultimately debunked the JFK Fed myth, which, in that conversation, I described thusly. So, uh, probably a source that most people are wittingly or not getting this rumor from is Jim Marr's book, Crossfire, on the JFK assassination. And I want to preface this by saying that I think this is still a very valuable tome for researchers into the JFK assassination. There's a lot of very important information that Jim Mars was able to uncover, a lot of legwork and investigative journalism that went into the creation of this, lots of very important, valuable information that stands. Unfortunately, some information that doesn't stand. And I think this is one example of that, which was really only mentioned in passing on a page or two here, but I think is probably the source of a lot of people um, coming to understand this. So let's just read a little bit about the argument itself. Uh, Jim Mars writes, Another overlooked aspect of Kennedy's attempt to reform American society involves money. Kennedy apparently reasoned that by returning to the Constitution, which states that only Congress shall coin and regulate money, the soaring national debt could be reduced by not paying interest to the makers of the Federal Reserve System, who print paper money, then loan it to the government at interest. He moved in this area on June 4, 1963, by signing Executive Order 11110, which called for the issuance of $4,292,893,815 in United States notes through the U.S. Treasury rather than the traditional Federal Reserve System. That same day, Kennedy signed a bill changing the backing of $1 and $2 bills from silver to gold, adding strength to the weakened U.S. currency. Kennedy's controller of the currency, James J. Saxon, had been at odds with the powerful Federal Reserve Board for some time, encouraging broader investment and lending powers for banks that were not part of the Federal Reserve System. Saxon also had decided that non-reserve banks could underwrite state and local general ob obligation bonds, again weakening the dominant Federal Reserve banks. A number of Kennedy bills were issued, were indeed issued. The author has a $5 bill in his possession with the heading United States Notes, uh, note, but were quickly withdrawn after Kennedy's death. According to information from the Library of the Controller of the Currency, Executive Order 11110 remains in effect today, which would have been 1988 as Mars was writing this. Although successive administrations, beginning with that of President Lyndon Johnson, apparently have simply ignored it and instead returned to the practice of paying interest on Federal Reserve notes. Today, we continue to use Federal Reserve notes and the deficit is at an all-time high. If you haven't yet done so, I will, of course, exhort you to go and watch and or listen to that interview in its entirety, where G. Edward Griffin, author of The Creature from Jekyll Island, and myself go through and debunk that uh, JFK slash Fed myth step by step. But let's take a look at that in some more detail because it does, at first blush, seem very persuasive. Uh, it seems 
that, that we have an authoritative account of this executive order that author not uh, ordered the issuance of all uh, so much uh, debt-free money and in preparation for basically withdrawal of Federal Reserve notes. I mean, that's a pretty amazing, mind-blowing thing that's going on here, right? Well, not when you actually start to look at the details. And to be fair to people like Jim Mars, whose research I'm not necessarily trying to de denigrate here, um, this was written decades ago in what was truly a different era. I think people have to really grasp how fundamentally different an era we are living in right now, where if you want to know about Executive Order 11110, you type that into a search engine of choice, preferably not Google, but you will find the actual text of the executive order. It will take you a grand total of 30 seconds if you're a slow typer. It is remarkably simple to have access to data like that in our current age. But a few decades ago, to actually see something like Executive Order 11110, you would have had to physically go to some Library of Congress or the uh, presidential, the JFK Presidential Library or some records archive somewhere in some remote location and go, trudged through the, the bookshelves and found some dusty tome uh, and pulled it off the shelf and you would have had to look, at, look it up and write it down and, and, and uh, do that legwork. Now, it, it's never been easier and literally anyone, in fact, everyone listening to my voice right now could do it for themselves in less than 30 seconds. So let's do that. Let's look at the actual executive order. I'm going to be looking at the uh, copy here on the Pre American Presidency uh, Project at presidency.ucsb.edu. It's a really remarkable um, resource for researchers who are interested in really any of the, the presidents. Um, and it has audiovisual material when applicable and transcripts of speeches and executive orders and all sorts of just data from various presidents. And here they have Executive Order 11110 available for your perusal. So the full title of this executive order is Amendment of Executive Order Number 10289 as amended relating to the performance of certain functions affecting the Department of the Treasury. Which is quite a mouthful, but it does tell us something important about this executive order, namely that this isn't some new, new thing that's being created out of whole cloth. It's an amendment of an existing executive order, 10289, which when you go and look that one up, which again takes another few seconds, uh, you will find that it was an executive order issued under Harry S. Truman in September of 1951. And that one was entitled, Providing for the Performance of Certain Functions of the President by the Secretary of the Treasury. Interesting. So we're starting to get a sense of what, at least what this might pertain to. And again, if you go back to 11110, you find that this is amending a, uh, the authority vested in the President by paragraph B of section 43 of the Act of May 12, 1933, as amended 31 U.S.C. 821 subparagraph B. It's this kind of legal gobbledygook, which of course just makes people's eyes glaze, glaze over and they think, uh, you know, I don't want to follow this particular rabbit hole, so I'll just see what someone else says about this. No, let's follow the trail, because it's important that we actually do this and we see how it's done, so we don't just simply take people's word for what things like this says. Alright, so this is talking about uh, the authority vested in the president by paragraph B, blah blah blah. Alright, I'll throw in a link to Section 43 of the Act of May 12, 1933, as amended, if you really want to trace down that particular rabbit. But let's just 
break down this executive order that we have here in front of us, this one from JFK in 1963, and just simplify it. So essentially what this is saying is the Secretary of the Treasury is hereby designated and empowered to perform the following described functions of the President without the approval, ratification, or other action of the President. Colon. The authority vested in the President by paragraph B of section 43, da 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 da, to issue silver certificates against any silver bullion, silver, or standard silver dollars in the Treasury, not then held for redemption of any outstanding silver certificates, to prescribe the denominations of such silver certificates, and to coin standard silver dollars and subsidiary silver currency for their redemption. So, that is the meat and potatoes. That is the essence. That is what this executive order is about. It is taking the authority granted to the president to do this particularly described function and giving it to the secretary of the treasury. That's it. So any claim that this executive order ordered the issuance of $4,289,000,000 dollars, uh, silver certificate dollars, United States notes, is false. It is wrong. It is not true. This did not order the issuance of anything. All it did is take a power that was previously the sole purview of the president and gave it to the Secretary of the Treasury to be able to perform without seeking approval of the president. So it's an interesting executive order where the president is signing an executive order to say, this power that I have, I'm giving it to the, Treasury sec the, the, the Secretary of the Treasury. He can use it. He can do it. Doesn't need to ask my word for it. Well, that's an interesting thing, especially in the administration of a president who is clearly being targeted by various people for him to just start assigning powers to other people. That's interesting. All right, well, that could still mean a lot of different things. So we have to understand the context of this. Why is he handing this particular power to issue silver certificates, i.e. these United States notes, debt-free instruments, backed by silver in the treasury, redeemable in silver, why is he handing that power to the secretary of the treasury? Well, did he ever talk about this subject? Did he ever say what his intentions were with regards to these silver certificates? Yep. Yes, he did. He wrote it in black and white. He, in his own words, in January of 1963, wrote in the economic report of the president that was delivered to Congress, he wrote a little section about silver that we're going to read right now. Again, I will link you directly to this report so you can read it for yourself, but this is on page 23, XXIII, in which he writes this section on silver. Quote, I again urge a revision in our silver policy to reflect the status of silver as a metal for which there is an expanding industrial demand. Except for its use in coins, silver serves no useful monetary function. In 1961, at my direction, sales of silver were suspended by the Secretary of the Treasury. As further steps, I recommend repeal of those acts that oblige the Treasury to support the price of silver, and repeal of the special 50% tax on transfers of interest in silver, and authorization for the Federal Reserve System to issue notes in denominations of $1 so as to make possible the gradual withdrawal of silver certificates from circulation and the use of the silver thus released 
for coinage purposes. I urge the Congress to take prompt action on these recommended changes, end quote. If that didn't just blow your mind, if you were a believer and had parroted the JFK Fed myth, and what I just read to you didn't blow your mind, then I posit that you don't understand what is being said here. And in order to really understand this, again, it's what you don't know about what you don't know, but the history of silver certificates and why they were being issued and who had what authority to do what is a very long and complicated trail that economic historians uh, have talked about and written about and will, uh, I'm sure in the future, continue to do work on. But you have to trace at the very least the congressional wrangling that went on in the Lincoln era and then the post-Civil War era as to what the shape of the post-Civil War banking system would look like. And there was various acts of Congress. There were three different legal tender acts passed in the 1860s, and there were other things that amended those, such as the uh, Specie Payment Resumption Act of 1875, and there were amendments to that. And, and what that did was mandate that a certain amount of these silver certificates, that is to say, United States notes, not Federal Reserve notes, and for Americans in the audience who don't know the difference, take one of those pieces of paper out of your wallet and take a look. It will say Federal Reserve note. Um, that is printed by, obviously, the Federal Reserve, and that's a Federal Reserve note. That is a debt instrument. Uh, the United States note was a debt-free instrument. It was issued by the Treasury, um, backed by the silver that would the, uh, the Treasury held for that purpose, and they were mandated to have a certain number of those silver certificates circulating at any one time, so when it reached a certain level, they had to issue more. So that took place on a number of different occasions, and you can read about it, but specifically in the modern era, in the post-Federal Reserve era, it took place on uh, four different occasions. 1928, 1953, 1963, and 1966, which is interesting because I think even in my conversation with G. Edward Griffin, I said that 1963, the issuance that went out uh, at that time under Kennedy, was the last issuance. Actually, I was wrong about that. There was a further issuance of silver certificates in 1966 in the $100 denomination. Um, but there was various denominations issued at different times. And again, this was mandated by an act of Congress. They, they were, they, the Treasury had to do this when the amount of uh, silver, silver certificates in circulation reached a certain level. They had to issue more against this, the silver that they kept in the Treasury. So that's, that's very interesting. That's an important point to note, that the issue that happened in 1963, that did happen, and people will say, look, I have this greenback from 1963, this JFK greenback. He was starting to print the silver certificates that would put the Fed out of business. That's why they shot him. Uh, no. Not only was that a mandated, it had to happen thing that, that would, they were bound by con congressional acts to do, so it had nothing whatsoever to do with JFK, and he did not order it, and it was not ordered by this executive order, so all of that is completely 100% a lie. But secondarily, he specifically said he wanted to start repealing those acts that mandated the Treasury to issue those silver certificates because he wanted to withdraw all the silver certificates. He wanted to replace them with Federal Reserve notes. He wanted the Fed to start taking over the, the, uh, the issuance of these notes, the debt 
based Fed notes. He wanted it. He said it. He wrote it. He, that was his intention. That was what Executive Order 11110 was designed to start implementing, to give these powers to the Secretary of the Treasury so that they could be ended. That is the real context of this. Now, again, I'm not blaming people for not knowing what they don't know about the history of all of these various acts and how they were amended over the years and what this executive order said. But, again, what you don't know about what you don't know can completely change the plausibility of an explanation. Uh, let's cover this from another angle. What I just said and the pieces in the show notes, of course, I'm going to link to all of these documents. When you put those pieces together, it will lead to this analysis that the idea that JFK was ending the Fed is totally nonsensical, absolutely not only not supported by the facts, but in fact 180 degrees opposite to the facts. Um, and you will be able to piece that together for yourself. But if I just ended this podcast here, I would forgive you for being left unsatisfied. I mean, yes, okay, there are unknown unknowns, and we have to have a humility about what we don't know, and be willing to put ourselves out there to test our assumptions and to uh, to question and continue the process of questioning. It doesn't end when you discover 9-11 was a lie or whatever. It's, uh, it's a continuing process, and there are many, many, many things that we have to continue to question. So if I just left it there, yes, okay, there's a lot of morals that we could uh, derive from what we've discovered so far today. Um, but it's not wholly satisfying, because, again, it seems a bit... A bit maudlin, a bit depressing. <laughs> if my message to you is you don't know everything, so you you can't comment on anything because you might not know something that might be relevant. No, of course not. Um, that's certainly not the moral that I want you to take away from this. Of course, we have to come to opinions and hopefully more informed opinions, and they should always be tentative and put forward as a hypothesis that can be, then be tested against the reality. But at any rate, that's... That's a more in-depth discussion. But no, that isn't really the moral I want you to take away from this. Actually, if anything, I want to leave you on this note. The idea that that the fact that we don't know everything can actually be a good thing. It means there is space for wonder and discovery. And that, in and of itself, is an important part of what it means to be human. The human condition, which is being programmed out of us. So... I'll leave you on this note. I'm going to share with you something that I wrote recently. Um, well, actually, I wrote it a long time ago, but I went and revisited and re-jiggered with it a little bit, um, thinking about this concept of unknown unknowns. And this is part of a, uh, a larger project that I'm not going to jinx by talking about in too much detail, but at any rate, it's part of a project. But this is just one thing that I wrote recently. It's called, And Now for Something Completely Different. And now for something completely different. Back in 2006, the BBC published an online article about a lone hiker in western Japan who tripped, fell, and was knocked unconscious. He survived in the cold autumn weather for 24 days without food or shelter by lapsing into a state of hibernation. When he was found, his pulse was almost non-existent, his organs had shut down, and his body temperature was 22 degrees Celsius. He had no brain function, multiple organ failure, blood loss, and severe hypothermia. Yet he was released from the hospital only six weeks later, having completely recovered. Even physicians were amazed that he hadn't died. A British Dietetic Association representative, Dr. Frankie Phillips, noted, 
I find it quite incredible that he had no fluid at all during the 24-day ordeal. Physiologically, that isn't possible. I remember the story vividly because it was so bizarre, so miraculous, that it seemed to deserve special treatment, beyond merely committing it to memory as a factoid. So I saved it to my hard drive. Though that was a first for me, saving important articles to my hard drive eventually became my standard operating procedure. From a very strange event, a useful habit was born. I was similarly intrigued by a story that played itself out in 2014, this time at 38,000 feet above sea level. A teenager managed to stow himself away in the wheel well of Hawaiian Airlines Flight 45 from San Jose to Maui and survived the full five-and-a-half-hour journey. Scrunched into a space not designed for humans, he had to deal with oxygen deprivation and frigid temperatures. But he made it. According to Dr. Armand Dorian, a physician who had experience with such cases, sometimes the planets align, protecting the stowaway from dying of either hypoxia, lack of oxygen, or hypothermia, lack of warmth. In rare cases, the effects cancel each other out. The need for oxygen declines as the body cools. It's exactly like the concept of cryogenic freezing. The boy's body went into a frozen state. But why am I talking about hikers and stowaways in a book about the New World Order, you ask? To answer this question, we need to look at the wildcard phenomenon, the unknown unknowns that come along and completely upend our understanding of the world. Sometimes these wildcards are medical phenomena, like human hibernation, which may prove to be nothing more than interesting anecdotes. But other times, they are much bigger discoveries, or out-of-the-blue events, that entirely alter the course of history. Penicillin was famously discovered when Alexander Fleming took an August vacation from his work researching bacteria and allowed some of his dirty bacteriological samples to pile up. When he returned to the lab in September, he noticed that mold had started growing on one of the dishes. Lo and behold, the mold killed off the colonies of Staphylococcus that Fleming was studying. A great deal of research later, penicillin was born. Wilhelm Röntgen discovered the X-ray by accident while experimenting with cathode rays. A screen nine feet away from the device glowed green when the rays were activated. One week of trial and error later, Röntgen had taken the first X-ray photograph, a haunting image of his wife's left hand, complete with wedding ring. The microwave oven came about when Percy Spencer, an engineer at Raytheon, found that the peanut cluster bar in his pocket melted when he walked in front of a magnetron, a vacuum tube used to generate microwaves. After some experimentation, he invented the first microwave oven in 1946. It would be more than 20 years before the technology had been sufficiently miniaturized to be offered for use in homes, and another 20 years before sales took off. These wildcard events are not limited to scientific discovery, however. In 1768, the Genoese agreed to cede their claim to the island of Corsica after centuries of struggling against local independence movements, invading Turks, and other inconveniences. The French, suffering from losses in the Seven Years' War and eagerly eyeing the island, took up the Republic of Genoa on its offer to retreat, beginning the conquest of Corsica, which they completed one year later, in 1769. That same year, Napoleon Bonaparte was born in Ajaccio, the capital of Corsica, only through the random happenstance of world events had Corsica become part of France, and that's how this native Italian-speaking son of Genoese nobles, who practiced Italian customs, was able to join the French army 
and go on to become the emperor of France. Even at the end of his life, Napoleon spoke French with a heavy Corsican accent that was often mocked by the people of the French nation he commanded. Wildcard happenings are also responsible for drastic changes to the world economy every generation or so. In 1857, lawyer George Bissell and banker James Townsend of the Pennsylvania Rock Oil Company hired Edwin Drake, an unemployed railroad conductor, to travel to Titusville, Pennsylvania, on the shores of Oil Creek, to drill for crude oil. Drake and his assistant met with such little success and so many setbacks that the company withdrew its support. Undeterred, Drake took out a personal line of credit so he could continue drilling with an old steam engine he had rigged up for the purpose. On August 27, 1859, just days away from having used up all his credit, Drake struck oil at 69 feet below ground. This was a transformative event not just for western Pennsylvania, it set off the first U.S. oil boom in the area, but for the world in general. For it was the first example of a large-scale commercial oil drilling operation, and as such, it led to the oil boom that changed the face of the world economy. Unfortunately for Drake, the oil industry was soon dominated by the likes of John D. Rockefeller Sr. and his monopolistic clan, while Drake himself, not having had the foresight to buy up the land around his drilling site or patent his own drilling technique, ended up dying in poverty years later. Similarly, the transformative event of our own era, the advent of personal computing and global networking, had its origins in an unlikely wildcard. On June 5, 1943, a construction contract was signed between the U.S. Army and the University of Pennsylvania to develop an electronic device that could be used for calculating artillery firing tables for the Army's Ballistic Research Laboratory. The product of that contract, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, or ENIAC as it was called, was revealed to the public in February 1946. Described as a giant brain, it was a modular, programmable, general-purpose computer that was capable of addition and subtraction and could hold a 10-digit decimal number in its memory. It accepted input from an IBM card reader and used an IBM card punch for output. However impressive ENIAC must have seemed to the tech nerds of the day, no one back then could have possibly envisioned the age of ubiquitous computing that we are currently living in. Today, microprocessors and other engineering marvels have progressed to the point where the average person has more computing power on their wrist or in their pocket than would have been imaginable when ENIAC was born more than 70 years ago. At this point, you might expect me to launch into a lecture on how changes can come out of nowhere and how we have to be prepared, financially and emotionally, to roll with the punches. This is of course true, and there are some good points to be made in that regard, but that's not my purpose today. No, I am penning this piece with the hope of reinstilling in my readers a sense of wonder and a sense of humility, feelings that seem to have been sucked out of this age of know-it-alls who have seen everything and are surprised by nothing. Contrary to what cynics believe, the universe is far more wondrous than we could ever imagine. It is the height of hubris to insist that the next major discovery, the find that will totally transform our understanding of the world, will not be a flat-out surprise. It's equally arrogant to assume that the next momentous occasion, something that will redirect the course of human history, will not be an accident, will not be some unexpected, unplanned event that will knock us from our horse, reminding us that we don't know everything. How easy it would be for us to scoff at the futurists of yore who looked at one technological feat of their time, say, the invention of the blimp, 
and predicted the creation of a vast fleet of blimps for ferrying people across the oceans. How much harder it is to realize that our vision of the future will appear equally as ridiculous to succeeding generations. Reigniting our wonder and humility will allow us to separate what we deem truly significant about us, who we are on the inside, and what we do is a reflection of our who-ness, from the random happenstance of discoveries and events. Consider this. Everything we think we know about the world is wrong, or at least significantly incomplete. Our conception of medicine, physics, math, history will be turned on its head by upcoming technological breakthroughs and intellectual advances. Our textbooks will be obsolete in the eyes of our children's children. In all likelihood, none of the geopolitical hotspots that preoccupy us today will be the spot where the next major conflict actually touches off. The wisdom of today's markets will be the ridicule of tomorrow. In the end, what is it about us that is essential? Not our supposed knowledge of the world, our incomplete, if not backward, conceptions of the universe. Rather, our humanity. For it is that humanity that forms the cultural legacy we leave in our wake. It shapes the morals, values, principles, ethics, and ideals. In a word, the character of this generation. And it guides the character of the next generation. Our humanity is the only thing that matters at the end of the day. And in order to rediscover how to access that human element, what we really need is to regain our sense of wonder. There it is, folks. Unknown unknowns. And now for something completely different indeed. Well, uh, I hope that that does at least make us think about the possibilities of discovery, what really drives us forward as a species, as human beings, into the great unknown, the unknown unknowns that we don't even know that we don't know, which really is and can be a joyous process of discovery. Um, and I think we have to approach, or at least keep that approach in mind as we unlearn things that we thought we knew and didn't know. And on that very note, I'm very much looking forward to talking to you next week about Glass-Steagall. I'm looking forward also to your uh, your participation in today's task slash challenge, and of course your feedback in general. As always, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me for another edition of the Corbett Report Podcast. <laughs>